Welcome to the CSF Author Interview Podcast. I'm Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Kevin Winthrop from the Oregon Health and Science University. We discussed one of his papers on um, the short-term management of uh, Zoster live vaccine in RA treated with TOFA. This is a follow-up letter where he looks at the long-term efficacy of the live vaccine. And to put it in context, even though we know the killed vaccine is more effective, something like 99% in the non-RA population, whereas the Zoster vaccine to about 50%, in many parts of the world, we have to rely on the uh, live attenuated vaccine. It would be nice to know it has long-term efficacy. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Peter. The study was uh, was a follow-up, as you mentioned, to the, the prior study we talked about a year or so ago, where we took patients prior to starting tofacidinib or placebo, and we gave them the Zostavax. Uh, you know, we waited uh, three or four weeks after that and then gave them uh, their study drug. And we measured their immune responses. And actually, uh, with our prior publication, we, we reported the immune responses weren't bad, um, really no lower than what we would have expected it to be. So, you know, we didn't have a control group, so we didn't control, you know, we didn't compare instance and vaccinated versus instance and unvaccinated. But among the vaccinated, the, the instance rate was, you know, three and a half or something per 100 patient years, which is about what it is for everybody on TOFA. You know, it's kind of three and a half to four per 100 patient years. So it wasn't markedly lower. We were really hoping to see a much lower response. So it, it did raise the, or a lower incidence rate, I should say. So it did raise the, the question as to whether the vaccine was very uh, effective um, because we did not see these, uh, we did not see a low uh, infection rate afterwards. Okay. And you're still recommending a three to four week gap between vaccination and having the vaccine if you're going to use it? Yeah, you know, I recommend a couple things. That that first experience we we talked about, if you remember right, one out of the 112 people actually disseminated the vaccine, and that was a person, and turned out was the only person in the study that had never had chickenpox. They lacked primary uh, immunity, so it was someone who never should have been given the vaccine to begin with. So that experience made me start uh, checking my patients. So actually asking asking them, number one, if they have a history of chickenpox. It turns out there's plenty of studies that show that that's quite reliable. Uh, but if they say no or they don't know, which sometimes your patient doesn't remember no, then I test them and I look to see if they have a positive uh, IgG to VZV. If, if they do, it means they've been exposed to chickenpox and they're eligible to receive the vaccine. Um, and then, uh, you know, probably waiting uh, three weeks is absolutely fine. Um, maybe even waiting less is fine, but at least from that study, you know, which we adopted this kind of two to four week window, most people ended up waiting three weeks or four weeks. And I think uh, that's what I'd continue to do. So again, I'd, I'd check the serology first, make sure they're eligible, and then uh, I, would, I would wait the three or four weeks. And in your letter, you looked at both cell-mediated immunity and fumal immunity. There was roughly a doubling of from the change from baseline. Is there a change that you'd consider the minimum clinically important change? And did the benefit immunity last a length of time? Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the five cases that developed Zoster 
in this follow-up. Uh, two of them, if I recall correctly, had absolutely zero improvement in their cell-mediated immunity. And then a couple had, you know, very limited improvement in their uh, IgG. So it, it suggested at least four out of the five people had uh, poor to no uh, vaccine responses. And that might explain why they developed zoster and the other people didn't. Um, so that's number one. So I, I do think some people just don't generate good immune responses and uh, and are not protected. For the ones that do, presumably it's it's correlated with protection. We know from other studies that improvement in cell-mediated immunity uh, and IgG, frankly, are correlated with uh, vaccine protection. We know that cell-mediated immunity is really the most important in terms of uh, determining your risk of reactivating or developing shingles. Uh, there is no threshold level. It turns out it's uh, a lot of people have tried looking at it, uh, including us, and you can't really find a, a level above which you're protected and below which you're at risk. It's it's variable and it probably depends on the individual, or clearly it does depend on the individual. So unfortunately, there's no there's no commercial or even lab you know scientific test that you could take to say, hey, you're you're at risk and you need you need the vaccine. Right. Did you get a feel for how long the vaccine might last? And comment on boosters. Yeah. So the the only data that I can draw from. Uh, well, first of all, there's been very limited Zosivax data collected in patients with rheumatoid arthritis or other conditions. So we, we did a study, Jeff Curtis and I did a study a few years ago where we looked at uh, in population-based databases and we found, you know, cohorts of RA patients who've been vaccinated and we compared the risk of zoster with uh, similarly aged and sexed uh, and diseased individuals who hadn't been uh, vaccinated. And we were able to see uh, a definite um, effectiveness of about 50% of the vaccine, uh, which is what I think you mentioned before. And, and we were able to show that, that that did persist. I mean, that persisted at least for uh, two or three years. And after that point, it started gradually diminishing such that at five years out, even though there was still some efficacy, uh, it was not statistically significant anymore at that point. You know, the confidence intervals for the instance estimates uh, between vaccinated and unvaccinated groups overlapped. So, so it, it definitely raised uh, two things to me. Number one, probably there is some protection here uh, that lasts several years, and probably you need to give a booster vaccination in two or three years, uh, although no one's ever done that before. To my knowledge, but but that would probably be the strategy, right? And really, it just begs the question: when Shendrix is more widespread and available, I've always wondered why it says to have two injections, two to six months apart. What's the benefit? Two months, six months? Why do they say that? Well, ideally, it's two months, but the the window around it extends. Uh, you know, not everyone in the phase three made it back exactly at month two and. In real world, I mean, sometimes you can't get your booster because it's not available or you can't make it, whatever. You know, it ends up being month three, month four. The, the bottom line is you, you do need a second shot. You need a booster to, to boost that efficacy. The efficacy of one uh, shot is um, not as well established. It's probably lower, like in the 80%. And, you know, the efficacy of 
having the two-shot series is in the mid-90% for, for healthy individuals. I presume these numbers are lower for patients with uh, rheumatic diseases. We don't know yet. We're, of course, starting uh, a couple studies looking at this, as there are others, and hopefully we'll have some better data uh, pretty soon. I, I think, you know, one other thing, just to go back to your prior question is, I think Zosvex is effective uh, to the to the you know of the magnitude I was describing before. You know, JAK inhibition is a special situation, and it may be that that these vaccines are are uh, less effective in people going on JAK inhibitors. I don't know yet. That, that's an open question. Okay. And what about steroids and methotrexate um, affecting um, response? to your vaccine, or well, not to your vaccine, to Zostavac. Yeah. Well, so, you know, Jeff, Chris, I just finished this big RCT called the Verve trial. It's uh, being submitted right now. And we, we vaccinated like 671 people on TNF blockers with or without methotrexate and low-dose prednisone. Uh, and we gave them Zostavac or placebo. We had zero cases of vaccine-induced Zoster in that group. Um, so. Um, you know, that, that was impressive. TNF blocker plus methotrexate plus prednisone, uh, no safety concern whatsoever. In terms of immunogenicity, we, we did see diminished immunogenicity, kind of similar to what, what we saw in this uh, TOFA study that we were talking about earlier. Um, it was definitely there. There's definitely some um, action by the vaccine, but it wasn't as robust as, as what would be seen in a healthy person. Perfect. So just to finish, any take-home messages for the clinician from really your two studies looking at Zostavax uh, with JAX? Uh, and should we treat all JAX the same? There's unlikely any differences between them. Your comment and on Phil Gotten is appreciated. Yeah, sure. I, I'll take the last first. I think uh, for right now, most of JAX look the same. I think Philgo, in terms of their Zoster risk, I think Philgo... Uh, does have this lower risk of zoster in their phase three studies and their phase two studies. Um, certainly there's there's differences in those studies in terms of where they were done and some of the makeup of the, you know, subjects what and whatnot. Uh, and obviously the time period is different. So it's hard to compare, Peter, you know, between these these experiences. But but you know, suffice it to say, uh, the other three Jack programs had pretty similar rates in their uh, programs and, and the Philgo program is lower. So we'll just have to see if that that holds up um, in the real world. Uh, but I but I think it's uh, hypothesis generating that it, there might be a different uh, a differential risk. Um, in terms of how to handle patients now, so if you're in a place like uh, Australia, wish I was there, <laughs> uh, then I, it sounds like you have access to Zostavax and I would use it and I would I would actually feel comfortable giving it to people on TNF blockers, methotrexate, and prednisone uh, based on our study. And I would not feel comfortable giving it to people who are on JAK inhibitors, but I would give it to people prior to JAK inhibitors like we did our study. And I would test them uh, for their IgG beforehand if they don't have a, uh, a known, you know, if they can't tell you they had chicken box with their kid. Uh, and I would use Osvax, and I think it will provide some protection for a couple of years until you get access to Shingrix uh, and until we have uh, data, you know, with Shingrix and kind of have a better sense of how to use it and how efficacious it is and, and how safe it is. So 
so I think you know we'll we'll be doing those studies, and if you're in a place that you don't have access to it, I would I would just continue using Zosivax for now because I, I do think it will provide some short-term benefit. Thank you very much for that. Just final comment: um, Wineblatt published that there wasn't flares from Chindrix. Have you found any rheumatoid flares from the kill vaccine? Yeah, I think they had like 400 people that they. It was just kind of a. Um, you know, observational study of 400 people, various uh, autoimmune diseases, most with RA, but also some other conditions. And yeah, I think 6.7% of people flared, although they didn't really look very systematically for flare. Uh, they didn't do any sort of efficacy or immunogenicity work. It was really just a convenience kind of um, sample. I, but I think it was useful because it, it did uh, suggest that there's probably a rate of flare that's no different than normal. Uh, so uh, that's something we're going to look at very systematically, you know, in the week, uh, in the several weeks after vaccination with, you know, flare tools, et cetera, and really try to get a better estimate. But but I, I found Mike's uh, experience to be uh, reassuring. Great. So thank you very much again uh, for your expertise and giving up your time, Kevin. Uh, this has been the CSF Author Interview Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others, uploaded to the CSF website this month. You can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section. Go to cytokinesignalingwith2l.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you very much, Kevin. You bet. Thanks, Peter. Stay well down there.